Hi folks and happy September to all. Uh, before we start the podcast, we are looking for your support. If you can, please join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's the only way we keep this show on the road. Uh, we know it's tough out there, but believe me, it's pretty bloody tough in here as well. The numbers are phenomenal. Thousands of you are listening. We just need some of you to pay it forward. It's really simple. Click the link, see if there's a level that you're comfortable with and chip in. It keeps us uh, keeps us viable. And viable is... Uh, doing a lot of heavy lifting there at the moment for that you get access to our podcast as quickly as we can turn them around all in one consolidated feed so you don't have to go searching for them in your podcast player you get one private rss feed and they're all that one-stop shop access to our back catalog which is over a thousand podcasts at this stage and you get invites to our live events including the sunday shows that we do online with our members it is one of the most fun podcasts we do every single week uh, please join us please help us I don't like having to beg, but, you know, this is where we are, unfortunately. We are begging. So we're rattling the bucket and we're asking you one more time to go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise Really appreciate it. Enjoy this conversation with the fantastic communicator, Grace Blakely. She is top notch and we were delighted to get to talk to her. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back yet again. But I've, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to happen. This is a conversation I'll be looking forward to having for quite a while. Martin, uh, you know my feelings on how people communicate uh, the global economy, how the intricacies, what, what does micro mean? What does macroeconomics mean? Well, like we have these conversations all the time, and I do think there's a, a need almost within academia sometimes to complicate things when we can simplify them, we can make them accessible. And that's why I'm delighted to be joined by our guest today. But before we do that, I do want to say, go listen to the conversations we had earlier on the week. We had a great conversation with Emma D'Souza yesterday, and I think it's really timely. Emma, as people will know, was the... Was the woman who fought for her Irish identity. She fought the, the British state. She fought she fought to make sure that she could have a Irish passport and that her husband would be would be secure in, in when, when when he arrived in Ireland. Um so Emma knows how difficult it is and we keep seeing all of this nonsense currently about, you know, identity, culture um, and what it means to be, can you be Irish, can you be British, can you be both? We, You know you know, on this podcast, we believe whatever you choose to identify, off you go. But it's just, I think it's a really timely conversation with Emma, and I would recommend people go back and listen to it. Anyway, um, we are delighted to be joined by author, economist, and staff writer with the Tribune, and, and podcaster, I, 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 I want to add, Grace Blakely. Grace, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you guys. Listen, I, I just I, I opened the conversation by saying about how economics is communicated and how sometimes we couch it in the language that makes it seem inaccessible. One of the great strengths I, I felt that you you have is you're a really good communicator at simplifying these things. Is that something that you've just developed over time, or is that something that you've 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 actually looked at and went? Uh, um, we make this pointlessly uh, hard for people. I think it's a combination of both. So, you know, I started studying economics undergraduate. I did the classic evil degree that all of our prime ministers have done, politics, philosophy and economics. And when I was studying economics, you know, I was really interested in it. Just I, you know, read up a lot about it and was like interested in kind of, you know, financial and economic news. And I got to university and the stuff that we were learning was just completely and utterly arcane and impenetrable. Um, it was, you know, like utility functions and budget constraints and, you know, um, solving lots of kind of equations, uh, which was supposed to allow you to kind of model the behavior of like an average 
rational um, economic actor. And I just found it so utterly alienating. I was like, this can't be helping us to actually understand what's been going on in this country over the last however many years. Um, So it was kind of at that point that I was like, took it upon myself to just read around other ways of understanding economics. And then when you see the the ways that you're taught about the economy, certainly as an undergraduate student, and also the ways that like people tend to speak about economics in the media, that they're not the only ways of understanding the way the economy works. They're not the only ways of talking about um, economics and just like, you know, the things that we do to produce and sell and exchange stuff. Um, then, you know, it allows you to kind of come at all this from a very different approach. And actually, I think to understand it much better. And I think when I figured that out, it kind of, yeah, it became my mission, I suppose, to start thinking and talking about these things in a way that would allow people to understand them. Because, um, but you, you know, but, these but conversations you also are so important. You also didn't hide your belief that things need to change in in in, in how this how things were being pro- you know how the systems were operating to whose benefit they were operating, what that meant, and why you know how you can join the dots from. Uh, someone working a, a, a zero hours contract or a, or as Martin would talk about bogus self-employment and that, and, and join the dots to that to how, you know, CEOs are earning 75 times more than, than someone on an entry level job. You were, so you didn't hide that as well, which sometimes brings people in, in for a lot more flack because they're, they're, they're accused of bias. Uh, but that, that's never been something that you shied away from. No, I mean, you know, everyone has bias, regardless of what they're discussing, regardless of, you know, how they're approaching it, regardless of where they're from. It's just, you know, what it means to be a human being with partial knowledge and like, you know, a set of values that you are inevitably going to end up projecting onto your work. So like mainstream economics is biased in a lot of ways and it is not an objective representation of reality. They know that, you know, they are building models that are designed to simplify reality. And that process of simplification is ideological because the things that you leave out versus the things that you leave in change the way that the models work. Um, So, you know, making that explicit and saying this is one way of approaching economics. It has some uses, but many of those uses are political. So it's particularly useful for certain people rather than others. Here's another way of looking at the economy. Um, which centers different forms of analysis, it centers different perspectives, has different assumptions. And that has a different different kind of political um, use. And when you look at it on those terms, you can kind of see that actually there is no objective way of understanding the economy. There's no objective way of understanding any social system, really, because we're in those social systems and the ways that we understand them you know, um, determine the way that they work. There's no way of getting like outside of society or outside of the economy to be able to analyze it. Um, So it's really just a question of like which set of assumptions you use and doing that in like a very conscious way allows you to then say, right, well, I want to analyze the economy from the perspective of, you know, the people who are most exploited or most depressed or indeed from the perspective of those who are profiting most from the system as the way it is. Is there an element that, and, and we've discussed this with Constantine before, that, that economists are generally to the right of centre, but is there an element that economics is lost in translation, but deliberately lost in translation? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, I think it's made deliberately inaccessible by people who, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Firstly, a lot of academic disciplines deliberately make things arcane because they're gatekeeping. They don't, you know, don't want the average person or even kind of less experienced people to be able to challenge their knowledge on a particular subject. 
But with economics, there's um, an even greater incentive for the powerful to make it um, difficult to understand because if you don't understand, I don't know, the way that like government spending and taxation works or um, the way that like, I don't know, monetary policy works, then it's very easy for them just to kind of present um, very political decisions about public spending, about macroeconomic policy as inevitable. They're like, this is just the way that the economy works. I don't have time to explain it to you. I'm going to use lots of long words. You'll leave thinking, oh God, I don't understand any of this stuff. This person must be right. And then you don't challenge it. Um, so obviously that benefits the the powerful. It benefits the status quo. But on just to bring that then into the real world, I mean, <laughs> this conversation's happening now. The, I think the uh, Tory leadership campaign has moved into its fifth year. Um, <laughs> we're now we're now dealing with you know this uh, this farce whereby you know a tiny selection committee of people are going to select this this individual um, who's going to lead this party. The policies are no different, and yet they're talking about you know as I said. Uh, before we came on air, a lot of cultural issues, a lot of, you know, uh, identity politics. We're, we're hearing culture wars, which we sadly are seeing them trying to import into Ireland now. And yet people, are, there's there's the advent of warm banks, Grace. Uh, you know, like places where people can go to get warm in this winter because because fuel poverty is, is meeting food poverty and it's a, it's a toxic mess. Uh, is... Is there a disservice in A, the politics, B, the oppositional politics and C, the media around this? Yeah, totally. I mean, like the way that this leadership election has been framed is that it's been, you know, between these two candidates, one of whom wants to cut taxes and the other of whom wants to balance the books as though those are the only two ways to manage the economy. Of course, you know, we've tried both of those things often at the same time. Um, so like Cameron and Osborne, for example, were like, oh, we want to balance the books, which means slashing funding for public services. But also we want to tax cuts. Uh, we want tax cuts for the rich and for corporations. So we kind of took part in this like toxic race to the bottom on corporation tax, which people in Ireland will be very familiar. Well, with. We, we, we won. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you did. You really won the race to the bottom. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was listening back to a video from the Global Alliance Tax Justice only a couple of hours ago where they said, sometimes you charge 5%, sometimes you charge zero. And you're so proud of it. And you're like, yeah, oh, God, you know, it's crazy. Um, but, you know, it just shows like the idea that that is something to strive for, like charging corporations as little as possible, generally on the basis that like it will encourage people, you know, new corporations to come here. And when they do come here, it will co- encourage corporations to invest. There's actually, there's just an academic study that came out recently that completely debunked all of that. It showed that this alleged um, link between low corporate taxes and investment just doesn't exist, which isn't surprising because, you know, in the UK, we've been slashing corporation tax for a very long time. And investment has been woeful. We've had really, really low levels of public and private investment for a very long time. And I know that it's the same in Ireland. Well, actually, a lot of that investment is just, you know, um, it's not real investment when you see these statistics on like what corporations are actually investing in. Um, it's, you know, often kind of forms of financial engineering that have nothing to do with creating jobs and uh, boosting the real economy. So, you know, this is all... Just I nonsense, don't know. Grace, I don't know. Making brass plates is very successful if you're if you're the guy that makes the brass plates. You know, of course. <laughs> there's, one, there's there's one building that sits less than Martin. You know, it's about less than two kilometers from where I sit now. That had over was it over. 
250 companies oh, registered. Yeah. They were all, yeah. they were all in va- they were all involved in the Panama Papers. <laughs> you know, yeah, we should we, we, we have called you know, the Dublin Papers. Guy, there's yeah. one guy in that building stamping various <laughs> different forms every now and again, and he, you know, his job is obviously very important. We wouldn't want to take that away from him by having a just system of uh, of corporate taxation. Um, anyway, we were talking about the Tory leadership race, weren't we? Yes. Yeah, yes. So, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. um, So, yeah, it's been framed as, you know, this battle between like, do we have low taxes or do we balance the books? Um, And ultimately, like neither of those things are going to help the situation that we find ourselves in today. We tried balancing the books in, in inverted commas, which, again, wasn't really about balancing the books. It wasn't about, you know, like raising taxes on the wealthy to bring in more revenue. It was actually about kind of shifting who was receiving versus who was paying in our economy. Um, and shifting that in favour of um, the wealthy and powerful. Um, And, you know, on the tax front, yeah, you know, we've had tons of tax uh, cuts for the wealthy for a very, very long time now. And actually, it's disproportionately younger people and like lower and middle earners who are bearing a huge amount of the burden for paying taxes, whereas those at the very top aren't really paying their fair share at all. So this kind of debate is totally, it's a complete red herring, really, what that what is really at stake in this um in this leadership election you know it's not so much about massive ideologically ideological differences between these two candidates neither of them are going to depart in any significant way from the kind of you know thatcherite neoliberal model that we've had for a long time like they've both said that they you know deeply admire thatcher and trust wants to be the next thatcher um the difficulty is of course is that when thatcher came in she was like you know ending several decades of the post-war consensus and making a massive break with that and bringing in this new kind of um, really toxic but quite revolutionary way of organising the economy. Whereas these two don't have any new ideas whatsoever, good or bad. They're just like, let's carry on doing what we've been doing for the last several decades that hasn't been working, but just do more of it. Um, so whatever happens, you know, we're screwed for as long as we have conservative governments. Then again, the Labour Party doesn't really seem to be wanting to uh, make much of a shift with uh, with this logic either. You mentioned enough is enough, and this campaign has started in the UK. And there seems to be a very great divergence between where politics is and where people are at. Um, as Tony mentioned, there is heat banks, there's going to be an explosion in food banks who are even facing electricity bills that are forcing them to close down, mm. which is just absolutely crazy. Do you think that the UK political system, when you look at Scotland saying we're out, we want out, do you think that this is the last throes of the UK as an entity? It's hard to say, you know, politics when it comes to these questions around, well, really like the structure of the British constitution and of the state can be very unpredictable, Um, especially, you know, given our parliamentary system and what tends to happen around election time. Um, The Conservatives are probably not going to do very well at the next election, but the Labour Party probably isn't going to do very well either. And what do we know about that context? Well, it gives minor um, regionally focused parties a massive um, amount of power in our in Westminster politics. And when that tends to happen, we do tend to see demands for either greater decentralization or, you know, referenda on membership of the United Kingdom in general. That's true of Scotland. 
Um, it's increasingly true of Wales, actually, where there is like an increasingly powerful kind of um, national self-determination movement. And obviously what's going on in Ireland, um, it, you know, it's part of the reason that the um, Boris Johnson's government was has been having so much trouble for such a long time, because it just has this kind of, you know, nonsensical kick the can down the road position on uh, on um, uh, on Northern Ireland when it comes to the European Union. So there are really, you know, in every part of of the union, to the extent you can really call it the union anymore, um, there are these cracks that do appear to be showing. And all it will take will be a couple of big political events um, to turn those cracks into really big fissures. You know, you can imagine a situation in which, say, um, the Tories, you know, don't have a majority. Labour doesn't have a majority. Labour manages to form a majority with the SNP at the next election in exchange for giving a referendum, the referendum wins, other, you know, parts of the country, Wales, even like Cornwall, like who knows, start saying, well, maybe we want greater levels of decentralisation or even, you know, our own referenda. Like there's really no, that's a quite an extreme scenario, but there's no telling what could end up happening uh, in this very unpredictable political time because no party really has the capacity to, I don't think at the moment, really win a majority and impose policies that are going to put an end to this crisis. But even even at that, and, and again, accepting that actually Brexit was the accelerant on that, the, the, the main issue is the UK has been in decline for a number of years before Brexit and, and you know, the economy has, has, has shrunk. Living standards have been getting worse and that obviously leads to that polarisation and we've seen that. Now, we've seen that everywhere. But we're now seeing in the UK the the central bank using the only lever it has and just saying, well, we'll pull we'll pull on the interest rate lever, and we're gonna you know, there's, there's talk of another half a percent in September, and this is a destructive a destructive tool to be used to actually deleverage and again something that you would talk about workers' abilities because at the moment at least at, at least if nothing else is right there's there's still some leverage for workers because you know you're you're approaching full employment there's no does it there's a healthy enough number of people at work and and but employers the last number of years Grace like I mean from the from the global financial crisis into the pandemic what we've actually seen is the the, the, the greatest transfer of wealth from the bottom to the top in the history of uh, of the West and now that's kind of taken a little bit of a back a back seat and the central bank seems to be pulling the levers to help that keep that party that show on the road am I, am I wrong in that and, and did a man does the man on the street realize that? Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of explain a little bit what is going on when it comes to like monetary policy here, um, you know, as people know, when you raise interest rates, you are making borrowing more expensive, borrowing particularly for businesses, but also for households more expensive. That means businesses are going to invest less. It means fewer jobs, potentially lower wages. It also means paying your mortgage is going to be a little bit more expensive. So the idea has been for a very long time that central banks would kind of use their powers to manipulate interest rates, to guide the economy, to guide people's expectations around what borrowing costs are going to be and actually also influence those borrowing costs themselves to basically either take the the heat out of the economy or put their foot on the accelerator. Sorry for that mixed metaphor. But to either kind of slow the economy down or speed it up. Um, so when you get like big periods of kind of economic growth, interest rates get a raise to bring down inflation and to kind of slow that growth in the economy to make sure that it doesn't overheat. And then when the economy is kind of not doing particularly well, um, the idea is to then reduce interest rates so it's cheaper for people to borrow, and that then allows businesses to go out and invest more easily. Um, 
there are there are a whole host of problems with the way that this is supposed to work. You know, the transmission isn't particularly clear often, and the cost of investment is not the only or even the major thing that affects whether or not businesses go going out and investing. Even if borrowing is very cheap, if you don't think that the economy is going to grow in the future, you're not going to build a new factory. That's been a big problem that we've had over the last 10 years. And then on top of that, um, central banks have also decided that they were going to go out and create loads of new money, basically because the interest rate mechanism wasn't working. And all of that new money basically ended up in the pockets of the very wealthy because they pumped it into the finance sector, which is why we've had this big transfer of wealth that you just mentioned. So there's been like really, really significant problems with the way that monetary policy is supposed to work for a very long time. And now that we're in this this crisis, those problems have really come to a head because we have this problem that we had the last time in the 1970s, which is stagflation. So the combination of high inflation and low levels of growth. And what do you do then? You know, the central bank is supposed to say, well, it's our job to keep inflation down. And when inflation is rising, that means, right, okay, you whack up interest rates to try and slow down demand, basically. So if people are buying fewer things, that's supposed to take the heat out of the economy and allow prices to fall. The issue is that the economy isn't overheating now, because the reason that inflation is is being driven higher is these you know, big shocks that we've seen coming out of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, things that interest rate policy in the UK isn't going to affect whatsoever. Um, And actually, you know, we're in a context where, uh, yes, employment is relatively high at the moment, but we are heading into a very deep recession and raising interest rates in a situation where lots of people already have lots of debt is just going to make that harder. It's basically adding an extra cost onto households' budgets, as well as discouraging businesses from taking out any new debt and therefore you know, potentially reducing employment even more than it's going to fall. Um, so, you know, the central banks are in a bit of a, a catch-22 right now because they can't just say, we'll let inflation run run rampant because that would be to go against their mandate. But they equally can't really raise interest rates particularly high without crushing uh, the recovery. And this is a particular problem in the UK. And um, it seems as though the central bank is leaning towards what well, they are, leaning towards raining, raising interest rates to curb inflation. Of course, The way that that is going to work is, as we know, you want to take the steam out of the economy. That's how the demand um, mechanism for uh, uh, influencing inflation works. So, you know, the central bank is basically saying we want there to be more unemployment and less economic growth. And that has a massive impact on workers, on living standards, on everything in this moment, which is already a really deep crisis. But this recession that we're heading into it's described as a technical recession because the the CEO of the bank is going to get his pay rise. He's, he's yeah, no, he, this, sorry, so, yeah. I just think this whole idea of a technical recession is just bollocks. It's a real recession. It's going to be yeah. a, a real, real recession. I mean, obviously, like you know, the way that a recession is defined uh, is determined by you know uh, policymakers and economists and whatever. And it's you know technically two or more periods of negative economic growth. And there's all sorts of things that you can add into that to determine whether or not, you know, we're in a recession, whether it's a double dip recession, like what kind of recession or whatever. Ultimately, the thing that we know is that people's living standards are going to fall dramatically. And that is likely to be a long-term and permanent fall for many, many people. For those in the kind of middle and the top end of the income spectrum, that may be less so, less the case. So, you know, we know that after most of these crises, the incomes of the wealthy tend to recover pretty quickly uh, because central banks focus quite strongly on, um, you know, uh, getting the momentum back in financial markets. And a lot of uh, people's wealth is obviously invested in financial markets and in the UK, crucially, the property market as well. Um, But for everyone else, this is going to create 
long-term problems. Mm. Any recession in any case creates long-term problems because as soon as you have people unemployed for long periods of time, they have then a long-term impact on their earnings. People who entered the labour market during a recession earn less on average over the course of the rest of their lives. And there's going to be the fact that a lot of people are going to be made homeless. Like they're going to have, you know, kids growing up in this context are going to have like permanent issues they're going to have to deal with. This is not, you know, people may say this is a technical recession, but this is really something to be very, very concerned about in terms of the impact that it's going to have on people's lives. I saw the statistics yesterday where it was, you know, over two thirds of People in the UK, broadly speaking, will will um, be in fuel poverty. You know, at a certain this was these are this. I know they said Northern Ireland would be the worst area hit, but we've seen all mm. of these things. So if you if you broaden it out, and I also want to one thing that's also of interest is, I mean, I was there at the coalface in two thousand and seven when we ruined the world, but when that's when the recession, the global financial crisis, kind of started to hit at late two thousand and seven. It took nearly till the end of 2014 for all the jobs to be regained in terms of the number of people at work. Um, as as so, you know, the recession was technically over, I believe, by 2011. But it took another further, nearly nearly three and a half to four years, depending on where you sit, for all those jobs to come back. So what Grace is saying is actually completely true. The repercussions further down the socioeconomic uh, hierarchy are much more long term and and have much a much more profound uh, impact. Which brings me to what I what. I mean, you wrote the bloody book on it, Grace. You wrote "Stolen: How to Solve the How to Save the World from Financialization." Yet here we are. Uh, I I was I I put it to you that even though the the Fed and the U, U.S. are trying to you know push the same sort of idea of interest rate hikes, creating um, higher unemployment to slow down the, in, the inflation, we see the ECB trying to do it both ways by increasing interest rates and coming up with this. I think it was a constant Gordiev called the Martin a creative accounting by keeping money going to Italy <laughs> through another Crazy. mechanism. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the financialization, those mortgages in in the UK, the US, and not so much Ireland, but we're starting to see the signs of it. Mortgages are starting to dip. We're seeing this. Yet rents maintain their levels, and that is something that you will, you know, you will recognize. That's the financialization of, of of home as a commodity, Grace, and we're all we're all going to be living with that, no matter what happens here. Yeah, totally. And you know, this is one of the big um, foundations of the housing crisis in the UK, and also massively in Ireland. You know, if anything, it's proceeded much further in Ireland even than it has in the UK. Um, so, you know, we ha- we live in a world in which housing is considered a financial asset before a commodity and that before, um, you know, what it should be, which is just like a basic human right to have a roof over your head. And what that means is that, you know, housing has become an asset class and um, basically huge amounts of money have flowed into that asset class, particularly in an economic environment where it doesn't seem like growth is coming from many other places organically. Um and in an environment where you know that um, the state and central banks are heavily invested in making sure that house prices continue to rise, it seems like a, a pretty safe one-way bet, you know, safe as houses, whatever. The issue is, of, of course, is that as more and more money has flowed into the housing market, prices have risen, particularly in places where um, the the market is most financialized. So places like London and Dublin, for example, are really good examples of that. In Dublin, you then have the added issue um, of the fact that you've got a lot of corporate landlords. So you've got lots of, basically you had after the financial crisis, um, vulture funds buying up, in inverted commas, distressed real estate. 
and then, um, you know, hiking up rents and creating a kind of long term income stream out of that. Uh, in London, the issue is more um, actually, uh, you know, quite a few either very wealthy people who have a, a big portfolio of housing or actually people who are buying housing as a form of kind of saving for their pension and then using the rents from that to pay for their income when they're older. So we have like, you know, a fairly substantial landlord class here in the UK and rents are extremely high. They can get away with charging just extraordinary amounts of money for like just appalling housing in London. Um, And, you know, that then creates an income stream that allows these people to stay rich for a, a very long time. We're kind of paying off we in the prior rented sector are paying off their mortgages and then paying for their pensions. So it's a kind of intergenerational transfer in a lot of cases. And it's certainly a transfer from those without means to those who do have means. Um, and a big part of that, of why they've been able to get away with this, so why rents have continued to rise, is not just a failure to build adequate housing. It's actually um, the sell-off of affordable social housing that has been taking place for several decades. Um, and that really just means that, you know, there's a huge class of desperate people who have no choice other than to pay the rents that they are then forced to pay in the private rented sector because there's no fallback option. I did read, um, I think in the last week, that um, council houses that were sold off in a particular area in the UK are now rented back um, as private or up to 40% at double yeah. at double the income cost they were originally when people had them as council houses so it really is the financialization of social housing it completely yeah. is the financial do you think it will last because it can only go so far before people push back and there is talks that this winter could be a winter of rioting in england that there could be a lot of civil unrest do you think that pushback is coming the pushback is definitely coming um the question is um, how much worse things can get even with that pushback taking place. So, you know, we are a very unequal country, but if you look as a model at like extremely unequal countries um, where the poor are extremely poor, there's nominally democracy, but the rich basically control everything. Take somewhere like South Africa, for example. You know, South Africa is an extremely unequal country, not just racially, but also economically. Um, and the way that that system is kind of maintained is through authoritarianism, coercion and corruption, basically. It's, you know, people um, are able to maintain the status quo through a combination of all of those three things. And you can see exactly the same here, thing happening here in the UK when you don't have um, legitimate support for the status quo that comes from raising people's living standards. You will fall back on authoritarianism, coercion and corruption. So, you know, we've got all this authoritarian legislation coming through at the moment, which is designed to criminalise protest, um, designed to kind of prevent the labour movement from being able to organise. Um, you can coerce people by, you know, engineering recessions to make them unemployed and taking public services away, taking housing away so they have no choice other than to go back to work. Um, and you um, also end up seeing a huge amount more corruption, which obviously Boris Johnson's government was plagued by. Um, so really, we are, you know, there was a thing the other day, a headline somewhere on Twitter that was like, the UK is becoming an emerging market economy, mm. which is obviously just, you know, a hilarious um, turn of phrase, like becoming an emerging market economy. Um, but, you know, there is a, a sense, I think, in which we are seeing um, a real state of decline in the UK, not just in terms of the economy, but also in terms of like, um, 
basic, basic political freedoms. I think that's going to be a real challenge in the years to come. And, and we haven't seen much in terms of a, uh, an effective opposition either. It's it's not really, uh, you know, it's nothing to set the pulse uh, racing. And I think you you framed it beautifully yourself when you said one of the issues facing the Labour Party is they can't be seen to do things that maybe Jeremy Corbyn had already said he was he was uh, was was pledging to do, uh, and and that has painted themselves into a corner and has left them relatively toothless, Grace. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, a massive problem at the moment. Um, Keir Starmer has basically said, I'm not going to do anything that Jeremy Corbyn has even mentioned. So things like nationalisation are off the table, any real action on decarbonisation, things that are just really popular. And people are like, oh, why isn't Keir Starmer doing it? These things are really popular. They forget that Keir Starmer doesn't see his role. The people around Keir Starmer don't see their role really as, you know, doing things that are popular or even winning elections. It's really just about taking back control of the Labour Party from um, the kind of popular coalition that sought to influence it over the last kind of several years and just making sure that like them and their mates have jobs that they can rely on for the foreseeable future. That is a, a lot of the time what a load of the factional bullshit within the Labour Party is all about. It's just like shoring up um, the positions of one elite group at the expense of another elite group. It has absolutely nothing to do with what's best for the country. You you would, or at least I do, looking at the UK, I see that there is a Corbyn-shaped vacuum in the politics of the UK at the moment. There mm. isn't a whole lot of difference between Labour and between the Tories. They all talk the mm. same language, but he actually spoke a different language to them. And that's the, the space that's missing in UK politics. Do you think somebody will fill that vacuum? Well, I mean, you know, people already are filling that vacuum. People like Mick Lynch, for example, like a lot of these trade union leaders are coming out and actually providing the leadership that I think a lot of people have been looking for for a very long time and speaking in popular and populist terms about the big economic and political changes that we need. And in many ways, they're kind of trusted more than someone like Jeremy Corbyn because they are seen as like authentic representatives of working class interests. And that's not something that we really have in British politics because it's dominated by you know, a very small class of of people. So it's good to see that. I think that's a really important point to make that we've seen that. And again, we're not immune. I mean, our politics, our doll does not look like our our, our populist, Martin. We know this. I mean, we've, we've got, there's, you know, uh, Senator Linda Rand is a good friend of mine, but she knows full well that, that you know, she's almost a token um, working class voice seen as by many of them. They're, oh, we have. Oh, we have. We've ticked that box. Mm. Same with um, with the wonderful Eileen, Eileen Flynn. Well, we have someone from the traveller community as well, you know, and it's able to point at these things and like not, that's not to belittle the work that's been done, but, you know, your politics does not reflect how, how, it, how it should operate. But one thing that is actually worries me most and Martin I know you're talking about potential for for uprisings and actually uh, Professor Richard Murphy said as much on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that he thought he thought things could get pretty ropey in the UK come winter but some, one of the reasons it won't get so ropey in my opinion is when you read headlines like uh, I think it was the Daily Mail saying you know maybe people are saying we'll have less to eat but intermittent fasting will be good for you <laughs> you know all of Grace really starting to re-brace isn't what has happened where, whereby we're now talking about, you know, uh, the idea that people will uh, will be going hungry, but we're going to reframe it as, you know, maybe it's good to skip a meal. You know, we've seen that. Hey, why not try the 5-2 diet, folks? It's just a bit, it's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. And it just shows the role that the media plays in kind of trying to legitimize the completely and utterly unconscionable stuff 
that our political pl- class ends up doing. Um, you know, the Telegraph, I think it was where that article came from, that famously the paper that Boris Johnson wrote for for a very long time. And they were like unflinching, basically, in their support for Boris Johnson, even when it had emerged, they had done all sorts of kind of horrendous shit. Um, so, you know, it really is a very small club. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to see more and more of this, more of these kind of desperate attempts to legitimize things that are unjustifiable. Ultimately, you know, people see through that, I think, and people see through this stuff and it becomes much harder to ideologically justify things when people's basic needs aren't being met. So I think that that's kind of going to become increasingly hollow as things get worse. But what you'll see in, in, in its place is, as I said, kind of authoritarianism and crackdowns and, you know, an increased police presence and all this, that sort of stuff to just basically force people to keep their mouths shut instead. One last question from me, Grace, and I'm going to go off off subject a little. The the British entertainers Bono and uh, <laughs> and uh, Bob Geldof had dinner with Kushner and Maxwell. Are you was it and, Mur- and Murdoch? And Mur- sorry, and Murdoch. Are you ashamed of those British entertainers? I wouldn't worry too much about who's got the like grossest elite. <laughs> I think it's definitely us. Uh, well, we, we do have some really cool gross figures in our own elite, yeah. you know, but yes. That's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not even go into the church. But, but Thanks, Grace, yeah. for coming on and having this chat. It, it, it's a real insight into the economics that's going on in the UK and globally at the moment. So thank you very much for having this conversation with us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been really great to chat to you. Really guys. appreciate it. I just um look, folks, you'll see follow Grace on, on Twitter, check out her stuff on the Tribune, have a look at the the the, the videos she's done and the, the media appearances. I think she's a brilliant communicator and it's great to have someone who talks economics in an accessible way, but not in a way that also also calls out the bullshit, calls out what needs to change and in simple terms what it means for the money that's in your pocket or is not in your pocket as the case may be. Uh, we are back tomorrow morning. Well, I'm back tomorrow morning because it's the 6am start. So Martin, you won't make that. I have... <laughs> There's only one six in a day. I have uh, I, I have um, Maria Maria Mesenseva from Kharkiv will be joining us for the latest in Ukraine. So I have an early start for that and I'll get that to you folks as soon as I can turn it around. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for sharing and we will talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the echo chamber podcast subscribe now on patreon